This is The Great Composers, an intimate look at some of history's most brilliant musical minds from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. Let's set the scene. It's the mid-1780s, Mozart is in his late 20s, and these are the golden years for the piano concertos. He had been constrained by his father and his employer, the Archbishop of Salzburg, for so long that when he finally breaks free of them, it was like a spring that had been under tension. And when it gets released, the creative energy that's released by this creates a flurry of piano concertos that has never been equaled. I'm CPR host Carla Walker, that's conductor Scott O'Neill, and while these are the glory days for the piano concerto for Mozart, they don't last. How many years are we talking about, Scott? Well, it was after he wrote the opera Abduction from Seraglio, summer of 1782, that, you know, by fall, he bang, had three concertos ready to go. He really hit his stride later in 1784, 85, but we're still going strong in 1786. So. Right, so three, four years, yeah. solid piano concertos, concerts all throughout Vienna, but then the yeah. words of warning come back. Yeah, his old boss had tried to keep him from leaving his employee in Salzburg by warning him, hey, you know, the fickle taste of the Viennese, after a while, they're going to want something different. You're not going to entertain them forever. And it ended up being about four years. Yep, it's about right. But at the same time, we, if we get in the mind of Mozart, he's on such a roll. This couldn't have seemed like, oh, no, now what I do? He's on top of the world. He's thinking, so what do I do now? I will... <gasps> Go back to my first love, opera. Opera. <laughs> Mozart being Mozart picks a story that jabs at some of the people who have put obstacles in his way, the aristocracy. Mozart said that he had looked through hundreds of librettos and checked many sources and just nothing caught they his attention. He just couldn't find anything. Right. So what <laughs> captures his attention? A play, The Marriage of Figaro, that was premiered in France, big hit, but it had been banned in Austria by Emperor Joseph II. I mean, what was so inappropriate about it that it was banned? The public statement was that it was too immoral. Here we have a, you know, an adulterous count cheating on his wife. You know, I can imagine, it's easy for them to say, ah, such a, such a subject is not something from which we create high art, my dear Mozart, mm, right? The real reason was because it casts the ruling class in a very negative light, especially compared to Figaro and the lower class, which in this play is promoted as being more clever, more virtuous, more moral, and it's just this this cannot stand. Right. Royalty behaving badly, being upstaged <laughs> by the middle class. Yeah. How did he pull it off? Well, he's got inside help. A gentleman by the name of Lorenzo de Ponte that had such a long string of successes that he was this trusted insider that could use his diplomacy with the emperor and say, look, I know it's the original was pretty taboo, pretty outrageous, but I assure you, I will edit it down. We will make it more comical. It will be very entertaining. I will remove the parts that are critical of the ruling class. And the irony is, without de Ponte's diplomacy, the marriage of Figaro and the string of great operas they created together would have never happened. 
So you've got the greatest composer, Mozart, and the greatest librettist, Lorenzo de Ponte, the Rodgers and Hammerstein of the time. And together, they are able to pull this off, this band subject matter, because de Ponte is this trusted insider. But Scott, is this just another example of Mozart saying, I'm the people's composer? I don't think it can be denied. I mean, you've got Mozart writing essentially in favor of the lower classes in critique of the ruling class. I mean, this is the attitude of the French Revolution. Which was still down the road. Exactly. If you were to cite the fomenting beliefs that created the French Revolution, here it is. And Mozart's very clear about whose side he's on. This is Mozart being ahead of his time in many ways. Yeah. The public generally wasn't ready for this, and the aristocrats definitely weren't ready for this. Well, let's take a listen to a little more from A Marriage of Figaro now on Colorado Public Radio. Se vuol ballare, signor Contino, se vuol ballare, signor Contino, il chitarrino le suonerò, il chitarrino le suonerò, sì, le suonerò, sì, le suonerò. Even with de Ponte's assurances that he would tone down the critical rhetoric, what remained in the libretto was still not kind to the nobility. Here in Figaro's first aria, Save Vol Ballare, he is saying to the Count, if you want to dance, little Count, I'll call the tune. Such insolence. He would have been thrown in jail if he had actually said it. Right. And this isn't the only aria that degrades the count. Here, clearly, Figaro, the common man, is being shown to be intellectually superior to the aristocrat, the count. In the countess's first aria, she is set up as being morally superior to him when she sings about her sorrow in face of his faithlessness in the heartbreaking aria, Dove Sono. As cleverly demeaning as Figaro's aria is, and as heartfelt and heartbreaking as the Countess's aria is, what really captured me the first time I heard it was the ensemble numbers that Mozart writes. He puts more content and more effort into getting a true emotional content to this music than any composer at the time. And when he comes to the finale 
of Act Two. It's a long number. It actually includes scene after scene, but they happen so fast. But the scene that really captures me, Figaro almost sets up humorously by saying, to give it a happy ending, as in the theater, which basically this is where we are, right? He says, let's give it a happy ending by setting up the wedding tableau. And then suddenly there's this tender moment and he takes Susanna's hand and they kneel before the count and they essentially beg him, please, sir, don't be obstinate. Give in to our wishes. They're begging him, please allow us to be married. And when you hear the music and its emotional intimacy, This is actually Mozart. Just four years earlier, Mozart was making the same plea to his own father. Dear sir, don't be obstinate. Please give in to our wishes. This is Mozart investing himself in this piece. This is his story, not just Figaro's. I'm convinced that if this were a standalone number that you could excerpt and people could do by itself. Put on a best of hits compilation. <laughs> absolutely, everyone would know it and everyone would love it. But because it's kind of swept up in this stream of scenes, it's not as well known. But I think what it loses in its extractability it gains an emotional content, which in this case is the most beautiful tenderness. Well, that's what's so striking to me about Marriage of Figaro is how empathic the music is. Absolutely. You are supposed to feel for these characters. You are supposed to feel their heartbreak. And this goes back to the idea of he's writing for the people. He's not trying to extol the virtues of the leaders or cheer the hero, you know, conquering hero returned. He's writing his best music for intimate, emotional things that the average person can relate to. Is it an overstatement, Scott, to say that Marriage of Figaro is the birth of modern opera? Can you name an opera before Marriage of Figaro that is performed regularly? Today, not as much, unless it's another opera by Mozart-like abduction from the Seraglio, but this kind of emotional intimacy, if I can just focus on that. Yeah, there's a seed to that that until the French Revolution occurred, this was not something that you made the point of an opera. And I'm actually surprised that the audience didn't respond to it the way I think Mozart thought it would. Okay, now wait, stop here, because this is an important point. Because even with the touchy subject matter, this music is extraordinary.
The famous letter duet from Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro, one of the world's greatest operas today, but not when it premiered in Vienna. In Vienna, it was not a huge success, and it's kind of a mystery as to why. We do know that there were saboteurs placed that made noises and hissed during the performance. Unreal. <laughs> and reviewers even said that because of that, the audience was kind of divided in their response. Well, I wonder if it was the subject matter. I mean, this is a play partly about making fun of the aristocracy. Right. A life that Mozart had experienced close up for many, many years and had decided he didn't want anything to do with. So he was far down that road of thinking it's okay to make fun of the aristocracy. But right. the and audience? Is, they still considered it a taboo subject. I mean, here's Mozart cutting down these authority figures that the common person still saw as kind of their heroes. Right. The French Revolution, this idea that common people were just as good as the aristocracy still many years away. Exactly. So maybe Mozart was just ahead of his time in Vienna. In Vienna, not such a huge success, but in Prague, wow. In Prague, Figaro was such a huge success, they invited Mozart to visit to hear a performance. And to his happy surprise, when he arrived, he stepped out of his carriage to hear his music being played everywhere. Tunes from Figaro being played by cabbies and street musicians, wherever he went. This had to have been heavenly for Mozart because he craved acceptance. This had been instilled in him by his father from the time he was little to constantly seek approval. There are stories of him when he was young. People would ask him, will you play for us? And he would say, tell me you love me. And it wasn't until they said, okay, we love you. Okay, then I'll play. Right. Life for him was so difficult in some ways in Vienna. He had to know he's writing his best music and it's not being well received. But in Prague, he was so well loved. He put on a special concert for them, where on the first half, he did nothing but improvise on tunes from Figaro. And on the second half, he wrote a symphony, especially for Prague. And this entire concert, he later called one of the happiest days of his life. Now, this symphony, when we say it's the Prague Symphony, it wasn't just, well, it happened to be composed there. No, he wrote it for the strengths in Prague. They were known for having really, really good wind players. Mm -hmm. So there are stretches of the symphony where the strings cut out and the winds play just by themselves. Listen to that. Here's the finale of his 38th symphony, the Prague. That is the final movement to Mozart Symphony Number no. 38, the Prague Symphony, on our Great Composers series on Mozart. I'm CPR host Carla Walker, along with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill. They loved Mozart in Prague. And in fact, that love hasn't faded all these years. They still love him. Every year there's an annual Mozart festival in Prague, and it just makes you think, what if he had stayed in Prague? his life would have been much easier and much more successful. 
and Haydn seems to have agreed. He even said at the time, Prague should hold fast to the precious man. It enrages me to think that this incomparable Mozart is not yet engaged by some imperial or royal court. Well, they didn't have a job offer for him, but they did commission another opera. And Mozart goes deep down the rabbit hole in this one, Don Giovanni. The legendary story of the lustful seducer of women who gets dragged to hell. Yeah, and in this version, we're not just talking, you know, lustful Casanova. No, this is a dark version. This guy is evil incarnate. We're talking rapist, murderer, assaulter. I mean, when he gets dragged to hell at the end, we're glad. He deserved it. Mozart and librettist Lorenzo da Ponte team up for a very dark version of the story of Don Giovanni, and Mozart's music matches the darkness of this story. Yeah, I mean, he takes this particularly almost kind of supernatural, spooky approach to this. Don Giovanni, in this case, the statue that comes alive at the end. Don Juan is unrepentant of his sinful lifestyle, and when Leporello, his assistant, says, the statue's talking to us, and he says, well, then fine, invite him to dinner. So he invites the statue to dinner, and when the statue shows up, and what follows isn't the happy-go-lucky, tuneful stuff. Mozart starts writing stuff like... The second violins are playing. Uh... It's just spooky background music, right? And later when the statue is singing, the statue stays on this one note. But Mozart has the harmonies move and these really wild dissonances around it. In addition to that, the violins do this really creepy crescendo. No one had done anything like this where suddenly they do an extreme crescendo. Let's face it, this is not music for tune's sake. This is almost sound effects. This is death creeping in and knocking at the door to take Don Giovanni to hell. Listen to how this sounds in the 15th scene in the opera Don Giovanni. The statue, who's essentially a spirit from the afterworld, sent to meter out justice. He arrives to drag Don Giovanni to hell, who remains unrepentant. most sophisticated music written at the time, and Prague loved it. They had an amazing music educational system in Prague. Very sophisticated listeners. So they went to the theater and they ate up all this new stuff. But in Vienna? Not so this much. This was a disaster. And this Do you remember that scene in Amadeus? It's this yeah. very scene. <laughs> it's the in, same scene. It's the same scene in the movie. Mozart is conducting away... 
Don Giovanni's being dragged to hell. Good riddance. Right. You know, <laughs> the scene ends. The theater is only about a third filled. You know, the smattering of applause, very polite. And by all accounts, that's pretty accurate. It flopped in Vienna. It was a disaster. And you got to imagine from Mozart's perspective, he has to realize, I just wrote some of the greatest music I've ever composed, and the reception is some of the worst I've ever received. It's almost as if the reception is in inverse proportion to the quality of the music. I hate to say it. But Papa Mozart's words, his warnings, are coming back to haunt Wolfgang. Remember, you got to write for the ignoramuses, and this is not music for the ignoramuses no. by any means. No. Well, at this point, Mozart's frustration with Vienna starts to come to a head. He had actually written earlier saying, These Viennese gentlemen, and by whom I mean mainly the emperor, had better not think that I am on this earth for the sake of Vienna alone. If Germany, my beloved fatherland, of which I am proud, will not have me, then in God's name let France or England become richer by another talented German, to the disgrace of the German nation. He is threatening them. It's a clear and present threat. If you will not have me, I'll take my talent elsewhere. But there's a response to this threat. A crucial response. Two noblemen step up to create a new, what they called a society of ancient music, meaning they're playing what we now call Baroque music. Yeah, 50 years years old. It's ancient. (laughs) (laughs) This is an important change in how Mozart was able to make a living. It is a public, non-state, non-church-funded organization that Mozart is now going to have a source of income from. This is a turning point in music history because it probably had happened before, but no one as high profile as Mozart had had this public position before. And it paved the way for Beethoven to follow Mozart because, in fact, these two noblemen ended up becoming huge benefactors for Beethoven. Right. Baron van Swieten and Prince Lobkowitz are the guys who created this, and it kind of paved the way for public patronage of the arts. So that happened to help keep Mozart in Vienna. But then, finally, after all these long years, the court position that Mozart had grown up believing was the Holy Grail finally materializes. Gluck, court composer in Vienna, passes away. He was making 2,000 gulden a year. Mozart could make a living from this. Yeah. I'm convinced that the reason he didn't stay in Prague, the reason he didn't take a job somewhere else is because he knew Gluck's days are numbered. That job is going to be mine. Sure enough, Gluck passes away. Mozart gets the job. Triumph, right? Well, unfortunately, whereas Gluck had been paid 2,000 gulden a year, Mozart was only paid 800 and he was told, uh, thanks, we don't want any operas. Can you just write music for the court balls? Talk what a about kick in the pants. <laughs> another one. It, he had to be demoralized. Yeah. This grail turns out to be a bitter cup of vinegar. You know, here he is. He's got the position he always wanted, but it's not what he thought it would be. And instead of writing great operas and making lots of money, he writes these German dances. Thank you. 
this is what he writes after Don Giovanni? It's demoralizing, isn't it? It sounds like he's not even trying. That's a good point. You know, when he wrote the Grand Partita, which is just this humble serenade mm-hmm. and Ina Klein and Nacht music, he, it's clear he's swinging for the fence, even in humble opportunities. Here, you can almost hear the resentment of, this isn't what I want to be doing. And when he referred to that 800 gulden he was making, he once said, too much for what I do, too little for what I could do. And to rub salt in the wound, not only is he demoralized by this position, but he also finds out through a friend that his father, his lifelong mentor, has passed away and his sister didn't even bother to inform him. Oh. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, to put this in context, Mozart finally had the title he had dreamt of his literally his whole life mm-hmm. in the city he prized most. But instead of being the joyful triumph it should have been, these were some of the saddest and most frustrating times he had experienced since moving to Vienna. And times are lean financially. War is brewing And he had to move his family out of the city to the suburbs because he couldn't afford the city anymore. I mean, he had exhausted his popularity as a pianist, and no one's commissioning opera in these times of war. So he moves into a flat in the suburbs that he actually likes because he's got more space. And he writes to a friend and a Freemason saying, hey, I've gotten so much work done here. But the same letter, he also starts asking to borrow money Mm. and these series of letters to his friend, Michael Puchberg, start to show his desperation. So what now? What does he do? No piano, no operas, symphonies. Truth, he had nowhere else to turn. But over the next few months, in 1788, he pours himself into three symphonies, number 39 through 41 as we know them now, and creates three works of art which to this day stand as a true watershed moment in the history of symphonic composition. Will you demonstrate for us? I'd love to. You know, I think the 40th and 41st get so much attention that the 39th gets neglected, but there's real innovation that's worth looking at here. He starts with this grand, majestic introduction, which is not common for him. He only did it three times in all of his symphonies, all grouped around this. It's 36, 38, and 39. It starts this way. And this goes on in a very majestic manner, but the real crux comes near the end of this introduction where it's just very gentle. Here. That dramatic dissonance, this could come straight out of Don Giovanni, right? Mm -hmm. He finally winds up this introduction with more dissonance, this kind of creeping, what on earth is he doing? Okay, here, we're done. Now when the main body of the movement actually starts, holy cow, it's a minuet. (laughs) 
So it's a minuet. Well, this a minuet's this aristocratic, very refined dance, but it's not supposed to be at the beginning of the first movement of a symphony. Where's this, it supposed to be? It's supposed to be later in the third movement. Oh. So the thing is, here we are, first movement in a movement in E flat that's in three beats per measure. Two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. And this idea of this dramatic dissonance setting it up. Beethoven would do the same thing more than a decade later, a movement in E flat with three beats per measure. With this dramatic dissonance, in Beethoven's case, he makes it even more dramatic because of its context. But again, it's that same sonority. From Mozart becomes from Beethoven. But Beethoven gets so much credit for this innovation. The truth is, the seeds for this were planted more than a decade earlier in Mozart's 39th Symphony, First Movement. So here's Mozart's first movement of his 39th symphony. And guys like me like to say, oh, well, it's not common for them to write the first movement in 3-4. And you might ask, well, why not? Why not? Exactly. Well, the reason is the third movement is supposed to be the minuet. And if you make the first movement sound like a minuet, you're making the first and third movement sound too similar. So Mozart, what does he do when he gets to the third movement here? Well, guess what? He doesn't write a minuet he writes something much heavier. I mean, face it, this is not fancy aristocratic music to be danced mm -hmm. in, in high heels with bows on them. This is more dancing in boots on wooden floors. Yeah, and a landler is a common folk type of dance, as opposed to the minuet, which is very courtly, very aristocratic. The landler is for the common people. This is heavy, joyful music, right? So that was the third movement of Mozart's 39th symphony. And when we get to the 40th symphony, we have something very different. The, this music, whereas most of Mozart's music sings to you from the stage, this symphony sits beside you and speaks in a very private voice. At the time, Mozart wrote to his friend Michael Puchberg saying, been having these black thoughts that I have to forcibly drive away. Mm. And this is where I have to object with, I've heard some commentators say that, oh, this music expresses those black thoughts. But the idea of Mozart indulging himself to express his own personal pathos, that's not the Mozart I know. Mm. He was consciously 
trying to drive away these black thoughts, how many of his letters constantly apologize to the person he's writing to, saying, I'm sorry, I would be so ashamed if people knew my thoughts. Mm. So I think if those black thoughts come through in this movement, perhaps it happens inevitably. I think what he's really trying to do here... Is he's trying to chase away the darkness. There are moments of such beauty here. This is not blackness. This is Mozart trying to seek the light through the darkness. So, Scott, when he gets to the third movement, he should be writing a minuet, a dance movement, right? Well, he's going to write a dance movement, but it's not going to be a minuet. Once again, he chooses that more common folk music that we call a landler. Once again, this is Mozart choosing not to write the aristocratic minuet, but instead choosing the common landler. Advancing our theory that Mozart was the people's composer. At this point, it's undeniable. See what you think. Here's the, again, it's called a minuet, but this does not sound like one of those prissy minuets that we hear in other symphonies. of Mozart's Symphony Number no. 40 here on the Great Composer Series on Colorado Public Radio, Symphonies Number no. 39, 40, and then his Crown Jewel 41, written in the span of just six weeks. And Scott, when he goes to write Symphony Number no. 41, his Crown Jewel, he goes all the way back to the beginning. When he was eight years old, he wrote this. Then much later, he wrote a credo mass based on credo, credo. Now, when he decides I'm going to write my greatest symphony, he uses that same four-note idea, which now sounds like... So here's Mozart, and if you can put yourself in his world... The world that they had just come from with Bach was the world of fugues, counterpoint, canons. In that world, you're trying to express beauty by exhausting the possibilities, by showing everything that's possible. He's now living in the world of Haydn, the world of restraint, form, balance, 
what Mozart is going to try to do in the symphony is to marry those two worlds together into one consummate work of art. So he starts to write a symphony in the world of Haydn and where you would normally get a second theme to balance that first theme, create order, create balance. Instead, he writes music from the world of Bach. Here's an outright fugue, just like Bach would write. So Mozart didn't give us a second theme where we expected it, but eventually he does. The main idea of the second theme is... But against that, you're going to hear the woodwinds play. And you're also going to hear the woodwinds play... So you've got all these lines going against each other to form the second theme. So Mozart is satisfying all the expectations of a symphony. But when we think the piece is done, he says, wait, there's more. Those pieces parts that he used to make the first and second themes, he's now gonna string out. First, we're gonna hear the second theme. Then we're gonna hear the first theme. Then we're going to hear part of one of those woodwind moments. After that, we're going to hear that flute idea. And our fifth and final pieces part. If you string these out and then have one instrument after another play each other in succession, first the violas, then the second violins, then the first violins, finally the basses, and eventually the cellos, but they're all playing one of those five parts at a different time, you realize you can stack all five parts and play them consecutively, which means if you string them out, you've just created, again, a fugue using the pieces parts of a symphony. This had never been conceived of. And in this way, Mozart marries the world of Haydn and the world of Bach into one consummate work of art. And they come together to create what I think, up to this point in history, is the single greatest movement in any symphony yet written.
That is the final movement to Mozart's final symphony, his symphony number 41, as we begin to wrap up chapter four of our great composers series on Mozart here on Colorado Public Radio. His crown jewel of a movement of a symphony and one that he probably never heard. Haydn talked to him about traveling to London with him and give credit to Haydn. He had to know, if I take Mozart to London with me, he's going to upstage me. But here's someone who genuinely cared about Mozart and didn't have the ego requirements that I have to be the star. And so he genuinely wanted Mozart to go to London with him. We don't know why, but it didn't work out. These three symphonies might have been written for that occasion. Maybe he was writing these for a set of subscription concerts that had to be canceled for lack of interest. But it's likely that he didn't hear these in his life. Well, you have to wonder how they would have been received. That last movement is very complicated. Yeah. What would the emperor who said that Soraglio was too many notes, my dear Mozart, and too fine for our ears, what would he have thought of that last movement? Right. Must have blown his mind, right? Because the truth is, I think Mozart was writing some of the most miraculous music conceived up to that point. It probably was too far advanced for people of that day. Too many notes. Too many notes. Looking ahead to chapter five, Mozart finds his balance. When we compare the finale of the 41st symphony to the beauty and easily understood music of Magic Flute, which crowns his final years, we get to view Mozart finding that perfect balance to where he can create great art, but he can write it so the average person really can understand it. And we'll explore that next time on our Great Composers podcast. Head to CPR.org to find a Spotify playlist with the music in this episode and a timeline of Mozart's life. The Great Composers wrote some of the most powerful music ever. They were geniuses, but they were also humans with stories of struggle, heartache, and triumph. This podcast is about understanding their point of view to connect you more deeply with their incredible music. Each episode features stories, music, and insights illustrated on the piano in the CPR Performance Studio. And if you like this podcast, explore other podcasts from CPR Classical, the Beethoven 9 at 9, a look at Beethoven's life through his nine symphonies, and Centennial Sounds, featuring Colorado performances of music by 21st century composers. Find these at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Great Composers was conceived and written by Scott O'Neill with assistance from me, Carla Walker. It was produced by John Pino and Martin Skavish with help from Richard Ray. Editing consultant, Cindy Carpian. Brad Turner is our digital editor with help from Leslie Smale. The executive producer is Monica Vischer. I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks so much for listening.